Welcome back to Reading for a Change, a podcast for Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Well, I'm going to start out by talking about, I think, what everybody is thinking about right now, and that is the global pandemic uh, that is unfolding. The last couple weeks have been kind of scary. There's been the, the growing pandemic. States are locking down. Uh, people are being told to shelter in place, which sounds a lot better than house arrest. Um, people are getting sick, though, and dying, and the economy is taking a nosedive while unemployment is soaring, and a lot of us are stuck at home, uh, which maybe at first seemed, oh, hey, that's okay. We'll hunker down, get some good snacks, watch some movies, read some books. Um, but that can get old quick. And so a lot of us are kind of getting cabin fever. Uh, I, I can speak uh, for myself, at least. Uh, I am in the house with three little kids, which is a pleasure and a challenge. Um, and all of this, as it unfolds, we know from most reports that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But here's the thing. This is what is really encouraging to me personally. This is where the church shines. We have this unprecedented, unprecedented opportunity to step up and demonstrate the love of Christ because a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are anxious. They're fearful. Uh, so we can really, in this time, I think, uh, be instruments of peace and, and, and show people the love of Christ. And yet, doing that is, is difficult and complicated. Uh, we have a guest today that's going to shed some light on how the church historically has responded in times like these. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Brian Litvin to the podcast. Brian is an author and professor. He's a PhD in ancient Christianity. Uh, he's the author of many books, including Early Christian Martyr Stories, Getting to Know the Church Fathers, and After Acts, Exploring the Lives and Legends of the Apostles. I'm going to ask him some questions about that a little later, but it's a great book. Uh, but probably the role that Brian is most proud of is that he is one of my colleagues at Moody Publishers, where he serves as an editor, and he acts as sort of a liaison between the college and the publisher, working to create these great academic resources and books for the church. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Drew. It's it's good to be here, and you're absolutely right. Uh, in all that I've ever done on my resume or CV, uh, knowing you is is right at the top of that list. So you know, I had a hunch. I had a hunch. Thank you for confirming that, though. And I will be looking at your CV though to make sure that is true that it's at the top <laughs> of the list. Uh, well, hey, Brian. First first question I had for you is just how are you holding up? What does your life look like right now? Uh, in the middle of this uh, lockdown. Yeah, thanks, Drew, for asking that. I mean, we're doing okay. I think for us, the issue was getting our, our kids home from college. My my son goes to Biola out in Los Angeles. My daughter is at Union University in Tennessee. And so for us, just getting the two kids home was an important thing for us. The, the chicks are back in the nest and my wife is feeling better <laughs> about that. So unlike you, mine are older, so they're they're kind of nocturnal and I don't usually see them till around noon and then <laughs> you know, they're up late at night when I'm already asleep. So we're we're making it work and uh, trusting the Lord and looking forward like you said to seeing what uh the church is going to do, how the church is going to rise up and uh, have a great testimony in this time of difficulty. Yes. Well, and I can't tell you how jealous I am that your kids are the age where they actually sleep in. Mine get up at the crack of, of dawn. So <laughs> no, no chance of sleeping in for me, but that's okay. And yes, like you said, this is uh, such an opportunity 
for the church to be the church. Um, a lot of what we've heard from from people, uh, Americans, is that this pandemic crisis seems completely unprecedented. It's like we've never seen anything like this before, uh, which is true, at least for 100 years. But historically, of course, this kind of thing isn't totally unique. There have been pandemics or plagues, whatever you want to call them, that have swept through the world at various times in history and including in ancient Rome. Now, I'm a little rusty. I, I'm trying to remember from my seminary days. I do remember that there were there were plagues that swept through Rome in the early days of the church. And um, I'm just wondering if you can explain to us, how did the early Christians respond when that happened? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right that uh, they did come through in these waves. There are kind of these noted ones, maybe uh, two or three that you would say were in the phase of the ancient church that were especially bad. And uh, let me let me tell you two stories. Let me tell you uh, from the sources that have come down, from the Christians that have lived through it, I can describe two interesting scenarios. Um, both of these are from the plague that's called the Plague of Cyprian. Uh, it's just named for this guy because he lived through it. And so it's kind of associated with his time period. And uh, Cyprian was a bishop in Africa. A lot of uh, North Africa had been evangelized. And the city of Carthage, which is in Tunisia today, was a, a major Christian city. And Cyprian was its bishop. And in his biography, uh, in chapter nine of his biography, it's described how this terrible disease. We don't know what it was, but it was ravaging the empire. It was ravaging Africa. It was ravaging Carthage and and maybe something like Ebola because Cyprian mm. himself describes it as, uh, you know, there was vomiting, there was diarrhea, there was uh, people's limbs were decaying and people were kind of walking around like a zombie apocalypse. Wow. Terrified. Yeah, really, really bad uh, times. And of course, unlike today, they didn't know about germs. Nobody really knew what was causing it. You just, you had these escalations. And in, in the biography of Cyprian, one of the uh, descriptions is the way that the pagans, that is the unbelievers, were were really kind of rejecting their family members. It was every man for himself. It fell apart into chaos. And uh the comment is made, no one did unto others as they would have it done unto them. You know, the golden rule, even if that ever existed among unbelievers, had gone out the window. And in contrast to that, uh, Bishop Cyprian urged Christians, he urged his flock to have mercy on their brothers and sisters, not to do that, but to risk disease, to reach out, to care for them. And Cyprian said, you should even do that for the unbelievers. Don't only care for your brethren and your fellow church uh, fellowship believers, but also care for the unbelievers. And what's amazing about that is that this uh, plague erupted right after a terrible persecution of the Christians had just started under mm. Emperor Decius. And so it really was fulfilling that that verse in Romans, Romans 12, 20, where, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay. On the contrary, Paul quotes from Proverbs, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll keep burning coals on his head. And so the Christians took that to heart. They didn't seek vengeance on their persecutors, but when that plague hit, they moved into it. 
and uh, took care of those who had been their enemies. And that was a great testimony in those days. Wow, that that's such an incredible story. What a heritage. And to hear, you know, that uh, Christians were told not just to take care of their own, but also uh, people outside the faith, the pagans who maybe even were persecuting them to care for them uh, when they were sick as well. Uh, so, Brian, tell me that that's a great story. Tell me the second story that you mentioned. Yeah, so there was a, another account that comes from really from the same plague, the same time, but a different city, also in Africa, though, this one in Egypt, in Alexandria. And this is recorded for us by the church historian Eusebius, who has a letter by the bishop, uh, who was the bishop at the time in Alexandria. His name was Dionysius. And uh, in that letter, he describes, you know, here is what is going on. And he's he's talking about, what, again, what the Christians were doing. And he says, you know, our, our brethren, they were, they were, um, exceedingly abundantly full of love. They were ministering. They they held fast to each other. They ministered to the sick, serving them in Christ, and even died uh, with a kind of joyfulness in their hearts. Many who cared for the sick were giving their strength that they had so that their brethren could live and uh, really sort of describing them almost as if they were like martyrs, like they were dying for the faith and not under a persecution, but through their self-sacrificing behavior. And then when when there were Christians that died, these other believers would take their bodies up. And unlike the kind of the corpses that were in the street everywhere, that, everywhere they would take up their fellow brethren and make sure that they were properly uh, buried and, and laid to rest in a, in a holy grave. And the bishop Dionysius says, uh, you know, this is his, what he says, with the heathen, that is the, the unbelievers, everything was quite the opposite. Uh, they deserted those who were sick. They fled mm. from their dearest friends. They cast them in the streets, even when they were half dead and left them there like trash. They shunned any participation at all with death and with their friends. And so there was just this amazing, stark contrast between this one group that was leaning into the storm, charging, if you will, into the battle uh, bravely, and another group that were kind of running for the hills and abandoning uh you know, all hope and all friendship and even all family ties. So just a stark contrast there in Alexandria. No kidding. And I have to imagine that was a, a powerful apologetic uh, for the, the pagans to see that example of the Christians and their response, like you said, such a stark contrast to how they behaved. Uh, how do you think that their actions contributed to the spread of the Christian faith? Yeah, no, that it absolutely did. And and we know this not only kind of anecdotally, uh, we know this not only from, you know, ancient sources, but even it has been studied by modern historians. And so there there's one, for example, a noted uh sociologist named Rodney Stark. And uh, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He's explaining sociologically, you know, you take kind of religious things out, sociologically, what would cause this movement to grow? Why did it have a conversion? rate that was so rapid like it did. And uh, in that book, he has a whole chapter on what Christians did in, in the context of plagues. And really, uh, Stark reduces this to, to two main things. One was that it, it really did contribute to the survival rate of Christians, because hmm. when you have this total chaos and loss of um, any uh, medical care at all, Really, in that setting, just having maybe bread and water, just having food, just having somebody to kind of come in and give you enough to live on would have made a huge difference when 
you couldn't get that for yourself. And so then, of course, when the plague passes, there's a greater percentage of uh, Christians relative to the population because more had survived. Plus, they had ministered Mm -hmm. to unbelievers who then thought to themselves, wow, I, I, I see this religion in a, in a new light. And so there was some conversion. But the other thing on that is, um, and Stark talks about kind of the, the, the mental, emotional, spiritual aspect, the fact that when you have hope or what people call the power of prayer, or you have this sense that you can make sense of the world, that the, the pagans really, the, the gods were so capricious. They were so, you, know, you never knew what they were up to. They'd strike you one day and give you a blessing the next. And so you had no mental way to make sense of your world. But Christianity did explain a sovereign God who loves you. If you die as a believer, you'll be with him, but he's taking care of you. And that, that hopefulness, I think, was something that um, really allowed the the Christians to thrive and also unbelievers to say, Hey, you know what? I think I can flip my, I'm going to flip over into this different grid of understanding the world because it actually works better in a time of crisis. And so that really was a, a major contributor to the expansion of Christianity. And when you graph the conversion rates, they really do take off in kind of the period that we're talking about and immediately after. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. And that what that's the ultimate litmus test, I think, for a worldview or a, a system of belief is when it's presented with some sort of existential threat. How do people, how do the adherents to that belief respond? And in that way, it seems that Christianity passed the test where death, yes, is scary, but it's not ultimate. There's hope beyond the grave. And, and so we're not totally immobilized by it. Exactly. And it's interesting, you know, the, there was a pagan emperor a little bit later time, but his name was Julian, very hostile to Christians. He thought they were lame. He made fun of them. He made fun of Jesus. He called the Christians the Galileans as if they're just some kind of yokels from the countryside. But one right. of the things, he, he writes to um, some friends and he's complaining about how fast Christianity is, is growing. And he, he says, basically, it's their moral character. He says the Galileans, they only they didn't just support their own poor, but as everyone can see, they take care of even our people while we don't do anything. <laughs> and so he's mad at how fast the Christians are growing. Yes. It's like, what's wrong with these people? They're yeah. d- <laughs> no, wonder, no wonder they're exploding because they're doing what we're not willing to do for our people. Yeah. And he saw that that was a powerful uh, recruiting to, tool, if you will, uh, for Christians uh, because they had that compassion uh, on on people. Interesting. Right. They so were kind to strangers. We, sorry, yeah. sorry, Drew. Right. No, no, totally. And um, it makes sense. Maybe, perhaps, if, if you're going to be kind to people that are in need that are within your own social religious group, uh, but going outside of that, uh, I know in the ancient world was sort of a surprising, uh, to say the least, idea. What can we take away from the actions of these early Christians and apply to our crisis today? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I think, I think again, what stood out was this loving willingness to be self-sacrificial and to sacrifice. I mean, in that case, they were willing to go into houses that were contaminated. Um, in our setting, I'm not sure that's the application in terms of what it is to right. be loving. You know, we, we do understand germs and they didn't. And so, you know, 
the point is to be loving. Maybe for us, I think one of the sacrifices I know I'm feeling that I have to make uh, is to not go to church. And, yeah. and early on at this this crisis, there was kind of that, no, no, you know, the church must meet. And even I, I felt that, you know, like, wait a second, you know, the governor says shut down. Are we just all shut down at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? But I I began to see, well, no, but that's a way to love my my brethren by not mm. transmitting, by not or not having the testimony of like flaunting what everyone else is doing as if we're sort of exceptional that was a thought I realized a kind of loving self-sacrificial thing to do, I guess. So that would be parallel, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and here's the, the thing that's so weird about this crisis and, and really counterintuitive and paradoxical is that in a time when we want to reach out and show Christ's love and compassion and comfort each other, even we're told we have to practice social distancing, right? And we can't gather and we can't, you know, um, and, and you want to check on family, you know, the, the automatic, uh, the impulse is to go, you know, check in and see how mom and dad are doing. And we're told, especially if your parents are a little elderly, that's the worst thing you could do. Um, and so it, it's, it really presents some challenges. I, I think you're right, though, reimagining love and compassion as maybe sometimes not gathering or not physically at least checking in. What else can we do though with these restrictions in place to show the love of Christ to um, people outside the church and people inside the church? Yeah, that it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I, I think I would say, you know, don't just assume that that technology is the solution. It might be possible hmm. to, uh, to make a visit to somebody you know, ring the doorbell, but keep your distance or just, you know, almost like wave through the window or, you know, there's something encouraging about a, a live visit, even if you don't actually, you know, make physical contact with that person. So maybe, maybe the, the solution isn't just, you know, use tech instead. It's just as good. I think there's some wisdom in, in trying to find creative ways to sort of be live or bring flowers or bring a gift, you know, be careful about that exchange. But, you know, there's just, there's something that the, the live presence really it just can't be missed. And so be creative with how you do it, keeping your distance. And then, and then another thing would be, I think one of the biggest blessings that the church could give to our society and even to one another right now is to absolutely maintain a positive outlook. All of this mm. hand wringing and fearfulness and, you know, there's going to be the zombie apocalypse and, you know, we better start, you know, hunkering down. Stocking up on and, toilet paper. Well, toilet paper, you know, canned goods, I mean, or just having a kind of gloom and doom, fear, fear-based approach. Christians right. ought not to do that. I know people will say, well, we're just being wise. Not really. There's a pretty, yeah. you know, that's close to cowardice, really. <laughs> we should have yeah, a- no, you're right. Our, our rhetoric should be different even, right? The way we yes. talk about it and, yes. and think about it. Absolutely. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Hmm. Be hopeful. That's good. Yeah. Well, and when it came, when you were talking about- finding those creative ways to show up in person, even while not putting people at risk. Um, I thought of all the great news stories that we've seen with people that have their parents in, in a retirement home where there's been an outbreak, uh, you know, not being content with just calling them, they'll come and stand outside their window, talking to them on the phone, just so they can get that proximity yeah. and visual, uh, which yeah, is powerful. And that's, we're wired for that. We need to be together. So uh, I think that's a challenge. I think another thing um, that I've heard some pastors are doing, some churches are mobilizing to bring people meals just by leaving them on their doorstep, um, not coming right in the house, of course, and, and and wearing gloves, taking all the precautions. 
but still finding creative ways to reach out to people, especially people that are vulnerable, that are in need, um, that are having financial struggles. Uh, so I'm really encouraged to see that happening. And it's, it's uh, convicting to me too, to think of creative ways to do that. Well, um, I want to talk about, uh, well, I think it's actually related. Uh, that is your book, After Acts. Because, uh, of course, it's, we've been talking about the early church. And I got to say, Brian, I'm not just flattering you here. That's one of my favorite books. It's just an incredible oh. book. Uh, I read it a few years ago. Uh, and uh, for those of you who haven't heard of it, let me uh, give you the the subtitle. It's After Acts, Exploring the Lives and Legends of the Apostles. And just like the title implies, it's looking at, hey, what happened to these people? Uh, Peter, Thomas, these folks after the book of Acts closes, right? That's that's where the history, at least in the Bible, ends uh, and what happened to them. So it's just a fascinating book to me. Um, so the first question I guess I have for you is what made you write that book? What was the the impetus? Well, let me say thank you. Those are very kind things that uh, you said, and it means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Um, I think I, I was interested in, in some ways, for the same reason you you just said, which is that it's a little bit fascinating. And everybody knows the 12 apostles are important or some other figures like Mary or, um, you know, people that maybe like Luke who, who wrote a gospel, but wasn't an apostle. And so there are these figures that we all know and love within the context of whatever is said about them in the Bible, which isn't maybe as much as we would think or would like to know. And yeah. We often say, well, according to tradition, like you hear pastors say, according to tradition, this happened or that happened. And it just gets repeated that that's a tradition, but who really knows what the traditions are? But I actually do know uh, how to go find those traditions. They're post-biblical writings of different kinds and and evidence that a historian can access. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go sift it and I'll try to figure out what has a better leg to stand on and what is clearly just you know, made up legend that some pious person made up and try to give a sense to the, to the, um, to the Christian reader who doesn't have the ability to access that. Hey, here's what, here's what we think. Here's our best guess. This much is true. This probably isn't, you know, and like you said, that's a kind of fascinating detective work, I guess, that, uh, I thought I could offer. Yeah. Totally. I, I've always, I've heard that in so many sermons, according to tradition or, you know, and you always wonder, is that just kind of a hedge like this may or may not be true? Uh, and and so that is fascinating to have someone with the training that you do uh, to dig into those stories. Another thing I found fascinating about the book was the grading system that you use. Can you explain that to listeners? Yeah, well, so at the end of each chapter, which is like each chapter is on a person like Peter, Paul, James, John, and uh, I have a little report card where having looked at whatever texts I could assimil- assimilate, or sometimes it's archaeological evidence like a, a grave or a place where an apostle has a shrine or a burial, and uh, try to assess, okay, what about this? You know, I give it a grade. Now that's that's like a B minus. What about this? That's an F. Clearly, that was just legend. Oh, but this one has, you know, there's criteria you use. Like if someone says it early or if multiple people are saying this same thing uh, or, you know, does the source have a kind of historical quality to it as opposed to myth, you can assess the evidence. And so, yeah, that's what I was trying to rank the, the likelihood of different legends being true or not about the apostles. 
Yeah, that's great. And then you're using your putting on your professor hat there and going, okay, I'm going <laughs> to assign a grade to the, yeah. the the trustworthiness or the quality of these accounts. Uh, and that was really helpful because you go, okay, well, if that was a C minus, I'll take it with a grain of salt. But if it was an A, man, I mean, that that's pretty good. Um, what character's uh, trajectory or journey did you find personally most interesting of the the characters that you cover in the book? Yeah, that's that's good. Well, um, I think for me, Peter is really interesting because there's mm. so much said about him. And obviously, we evangelical Christians, we love Peter. He's kind of fired up disciple, and we kind of know him from the contours of the New Testament. But of course, in church history, he also gets associated with being the first pope and legends about sure. Peter. So there's, there was like this richness to his story. Like, could we really call him the first pope? Did he even go to Rome? Is that even true? Uh, you know, was he martyred? Was he crucified upside down? And these different right, the legends. upside down crucifixion that you hear yep. again and again. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Peter was fun for me in that way. Okay. So was he? Um, yeah. don't leave us in suspense. I mean, maybe you just want people to buy the book so they can discover uh, it, but <laughs> was how, how credible is that account of him being crucified upside down? Because, um, as the story goes, he was unworthy to die in the same way as his Lord. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a little tidbit, uh, to your listeners here. So th there's two layers to what you just said. There's the upside down crucifixion and I'm not worthy to die like Christ. And mm. you have to separate those two claims. So what I found is that there is a whole genre of inspirational, you have to call it fiction because it's very much like Greco-Roman novels, where Peter is this hero, almost like a Marvel comics or something. I mean, he is like <laughs> okay. doing these magic things. He's like Christian Thor or whatever, you know, he's fighting <laughs> the heretics and knocking them out of the sky and doing miracles. And so that's all legendary. But, but within that collection of literature, th there's a little nugget of a very early attestation of him being crucified upside down, not for the reason you just said, but for the reason and he launches into this kind of weird Gnostic speech as he's upside down on the cross uh, about while well, the cosmos is turned upside down. And so it's this weird thing about the descent of the divine man. So that part oh. is clearly it's, it's made up. Like you, he didn't say those right. things, but it's nevertheless an interesting early attestation. I mean, it comes from like early in the second century that this is, what happened. Like, in, in other words, clearly within the range of an old person who was young at the time that it happened could have seen that and had an eyewitness memory there. So I think the upside down crucifixion oh. is probably correct. The Romans certainly did not always crucify exactly like we pictured Jesus. They were, it was impalement and they did it in every grotesque way. And there's evidence of that. So very plausible. Mm -hmm. It's only in the fourth century, late in the fourth century, that you get this switch of reasons uh, where now it's like, well, he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord. So I think that part is fabricated because the Romans didn't say, well, how would you like to, you know, would you like to be upside down or sideways? You know, they, they didn't right. get to choose their <laughs> testimony, you know, like by their posture. Yeah. But I think that that probably sense. there's some basis for, for the actual upside down crucifixion. 
Okay, that's so interesting. That is, yeah, yeah that's just fascinating. And I want to encourage our, leader, our readers, if our listeners, I should say, if you've been enjoying this conversation and uh, your curiosity has been piqued uh, by what Brian has said, head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of Brian's book, After Acts. And since you're a listener to the podcast, we want to give you a 50% discount on your first order. Uh, and this is a limited time offer. Just enter the code reading podcast, all one word when you're checking out to receive the discount. Again, head over to moodypublishers.com and enter reading podcast at checkout to receive a 50% discount today. Well, Brian, um, the theme of uh, this season is loving and serving our neighbors. And I'm wondering, you've already actually mentioned a couple things, but I'm wondering if you could tell us about one tangible way that you have been able to show love to a neighbor recently? Yeah. Well, thanks uh, for asking that. I, um, I guess the, the thing that you on the spot, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. My life is not full of good deeds, you know, like that on a daily basis, but um, little things. But um, I do think of a, a chance I had recently with a neighbor of mine who um, was in a was in a, we'll just say a false religion. Uh, and then he even kind of left that and uh, he's kind of a reclusive fellow or he likes to keep to himself. But, uh, at night I will hear through his window, he has a little home organ, like a little digital organ that he likes to play. And so I'll hear him sort of playing tunes. And, uh, so one day I, I recently, I kind of caught him and I said, Hey, would you like to, um, would you ever want to go over to my church? We have this huge pipe organ, beautiful giant pipe organ. Would you like to play oh, it? Cool. And yeah, he, he just lit up. I mean, his eyes were like, wow, that sounds great. And so I arranged it with our organist and took him over. And man, he just, he probably played for an hour and a half. My wife had come with me. The church was empty, but just the two of us. And she said, I, I have to step out. This is so loud. It's hurting my ears. Because <laughs> he was just, you know, you know, hitting those keys and just bringing out the sound of that organ. And uh, after that, I was able to ask him a little bit about his faith journey and, uh, yeah. So just, I think for him to even set foot in a church, uh, was a big step for him, but the organ was the way to do that. So that was fun. Okay. That is so cool. I love yeah. that. And talk about, yeah, a creative thing to do too, uh, that obviously I'm sure meant so much to him. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure deepened the relationship that you have with him and who knows where yeah. that relationship will lead. That's Plus, awesome. I got a free organ concert because he's pretty good. So I sat there. There you go. Pipe organ. There you go. And so, and what do you have the the keys to your church? You can just go in and do that. I had to arrange it with our organist, but he was <laughs> okay. once he found out the reason for it, he was very happy to do it. That's awesome. That's so cool. And, and a lot of churches wouldn't be that chill about about doing that. So it's it's yeah. a good thing that yours was. Yeah. Well. This has been a fascinating conversation. Brian, thank you so much uh, for being our guest today. Um, uh, I want to encourage uh, listeners to please, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you've enjoyed previous episodes, uh, jump over to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave us a quick review or rating. Uh, I know it seems a little silly sometimes to do that, but it really does help us uh, and introduces the podcast to more listeners. Uh, like I was saying, the theme for this season, this is the last episode of our season two. Uh, and I've got plans for season three I'm really excited about. So so definitely tune in next time. Um, but our theme has been loving and serving our neighbors. And when we started this season, we, of course, couldn't have imagined what would transpire 
uh, on a global and national scale with this whole COVID-19 pandemic and, and the practical yet difficult opportunities this would present to us to love and serve our neighbors. Uh, in the middle of this massive crisis. And yet here we are. Uh, it makes me think of the great exchange from the um, movie, the movie, the books, obviously first, but in the movie, Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I'm just going to read it here where Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And that that kind of captures, I think, the moment that we're in that we have this huge challenge before us. And the question is, what are we going to do with the time that has been given to us? Are we going to shrink back in fear and self-preservation? Like Brian was saying, are we going to kind of adopt the fearful uh, 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 mentality that we hear from people around us? Or are we going to reach out in Christ-like love? Uh, And I think this is the time to follow Christ with boldness and for the church to step up and to be the church. And if we do, I believe we could look back on this time as a sort of turning point, an inflection moment in our culture and in the church where people turn back to God, uh, moved by the witness of Christians and the conviction of God in their lives. People are contemplating their mortality for the first time in a long time for many of them. Uh, And in that way, I think it's an exciting time to be alive. So thank you for joining us for this conversation. Um, I appreciate it. And until next time, keep reading.